Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. And I'm Brendan Wesser. And this is the Waves of Joy episode. Today, we have the privilege of discussing Where It Rains in Color by Denise Crittenden, a book that draws on the traditions of the Dogon tribe of Mali to explore the tension between external beauty and the pull of ancient memories. Denise Crittenden worked as a journalist for more than three decades covering crime, politics, social issues, and human interest stories for the Detroit News and the Kansas City Star. She was the first woman to serve as editor-in-chief of the NAACP's national magazine, The Crisis, which was founded in 1910 by W.E.B. Du Bois. Later, she was founding editor of a Michigan-based lifestyle publication for Black families. Her numerous honors include the Spirit of Detroit Award, the Mary J. Ball Children's Advocacy Award, and selection as one of the most influential Black women in Metro Detroit, along with writing awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, the National Association of Black Journalists, Parenting Publications of America, Associated Press, and Best of Gannett. Denise is with us from her home in Nevada. Welcome, Denise. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're excited that you're here. (laughs) Why don't we just dive right in and you can tell us about the planet Swazembi, which is the primary setting of where it rains in color. Swazembi is an African-centered planet far in the future. It's like 5,000 years in the future. The Earth has been destroyed. And um, these are the descendants of the Dogon tribe of Mali, West Africa. But they don't know that because they've lost touch with their history and some of the culture. They live underground because on the surface of Swazembi, there are these floating vapors that are just rich with color. So you might as well just call it floating colors on the surface that are um, captivating. And it attracts a lot. They attract a lot of tourists. Swazembi is a tourist resort planet. Um, People come from far and wide all over the galaxy just to experience the colors on the planet and the underground where most of them live. They live underground and visit the surface because the colors are are electromagnetic and can be overwhelming after a while. Uh, People come to see, or tourists come to see that attraction, the colors on the surface, the rare indigo, which we'll get into later, and also their transit system, a wind force known as the sweep. I love the concept of the sweep. You do? Um, I think it's one of my favorite parts of this book. And I love when you introduce it. And I love every time it comes up in the book. What was the inspiration for the sweep? That is probably the best question, Brenda, because any other, other thing you ask me, I could tell you the inspiration for it. That's the only one that I don't know. I I really don't know. I just, what I do know is that I wanted the world to be vastly different from anything I had ever witnessed or experienced. And I wanted this, uh, this uh, planet of black inhabitants to be something that would blow everyone's mind 
and something that tourists would revel in. And so I couldn't come up with, you know, just ordinary, you know, well, they're riding in little Jetson style space shuttles or they're riding in this system and that system. I just, for some reason, and it could be, I, I stare at the clouds a lot. I really do. So maybe I've always imagined riding in one in, this, in my subconscious mind. <laughs> Who knows? And that's what it's like, right? There's no equipment. You just step into the stream of air and it, and it carries you to your destination. Well, you don't really step into it. You go to the transit station, the sweep station, and you stand in the right spot. And when the sweep cloud arrives, it swoops you up. So it absorbs you. Yeah. And then when it's time to disembark, you kind of you know, move your shoulders or just move in a certain direction to let it know that you're ready. And it just uh, releases you at the sweep exit. You know, there's like sort of like a slide or a similar to a slide and just slide down it and you're at your destination. There was definitely an element of coordination there, though. I noticed, right, you have to, you have to nod or move your body in a certain way. I, I think I would what? miss my stop. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the main character, Lalila. She's been chosen to receive a very select title, the rare indigo. But when we meet her, she hasn't actually been formally inducted into the position. Could you tell our listeners, what is the rare indigo? The rare indigo is considered the most beautiful woman in the entire galaxy. And they live on the border of the Milky Way, right? Because um, the Earth isn't there. But there, as we know, there are so many other planets that aren't identified. So she's just this icon. We could also call her a beauty queen. In our society, she'd be known as a beauty queen. And this role of rare indigo is a, a coveted title. And she was selected. She's been groomed most of her life for this position. And because of it, there are strict restrictions and she's a little frustrated. She's a little immature. She's spoiled. She's pampered. So we show her starting out in that capacity as someone who's privileged and entitled and a little bit whiny at times. There's color involved with her. I mean, she's a black woman. There's that color, but she, she can also generate colors on her skin and there is this theme of color. It's in the title of the book. And as you say, there are these colored vapors on the surface of the planet. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the significance of those colors that she's generating and mesmerize people and, and lure the tourists to the planet. Well, I did that deliberately, Rob. I um, played around with color as a concept. As you know, colors are vibrations. That's what they are. But we're living in a society that decides to, I guess, have a little bit of resentment toward certain races, theoretically, because of their skin color. Now, we all know it's really not based on skin color. It's political. Color is what's used as the, I'd say, the aspect that's focused on. So I, I just decided, okay, so we love colors when we see beautiful flowers. We love colors when we see birds that are just incredibly colorful and neon and all of that. So why wouldn't we love seeing colors floating across the surface of the planet? I wanted to show, well, if we enjoy color so much, what's the big deal? So I, as I was writing the novel, my, my thought process was, so you don't like color, huh? You don't like people of color, huh? Well, what, well you know, check this out. Look at all these colors. So I was playing with that. So then, of course, I played with skin tone and I made her as dark as she could possibly be. She's blue black. Blue-black was once a term, and maybe it still is in some communities, that was used as an insult. You call someone, they're so black, they're blue. That was not supposed to be a compliment. 
Well, I flipped it. I made it a compliment because I was a little tired of black women, women of color being the lowest on the totem pole. You could travel around the world and I don't care where you go. And a lot of it is due to colonialism, but you'll see, um, I'm going to say you'll see it in Mexico, you'll see it in India, you'll see it in other parts of the world. If women have this rich hue, they're kind of like pushed back at times and it does not make any sense. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So I was showing how ridiculous it is. So I have this protagonist whose skin is so brilliantly black, it's like coal mixed with diamonds and she can do something called shimmer. Her shimmer is one of her greatest glories and it's what people come to experience when they see the rare indigo. All of the indigo aspirants are training to shimmer, but her shimmer is the most divine. And when she shimmers, it's almost hypnotic. People are like spellbound. Now I'm gonna tell you, I spent a year in, in um, Zimbabwe. And when I was in Zimbabwe, I do remember that people were various skin tones, black people there. But now and then you would see someone black as the night. And I'll never forget that, Rob, because whenever I saw someone that dark, and in addition to being that dark, they happened to be beautiful, it was like striking. You would literally stop what you were doing and stare. I don't know why. Someone explained to me it's something about the way the light bounces off of them. I'm not sure what it is, but you find someone, I'm not saying all people who are midnight black are devastatingly beautiful, and I'm not saying all people who are beautiful are, are black. I'm saying that when you create that combination, it is just like almost flabbergasting. Sounds like you witnessed a kind of shimmer in real life. I didn't know it at the time, but I think I did. I know I would stop and stare at them. I mean, discreetly, of course. I didn't gawk. But. I love how you explain that, though, because I feel like when I was reading it in the book, I could understand. But when you just talked about it so impassioned, mm -hmm. I really almost felt more of that shimmer come through from the book. Okay. Because I could, I could kind of place it in my mm -hmm. mind. But as you were just talking about this, this experience you were having, it just added in yet another layer to the experience of the rare indigo in your book. You've mentioned already, actually, that the inhabitants of Swazembi don't really know their origins. They, they know of Earth, but it's a mythical connection they have. They think, oh, did we come from Earth? Some people say we did, but it's almost like that couldn't be true. That doesn't make any sense. Right. And I have to say it reminded me, and you can just tell me I'm way off base here, but it reminded me of in the way that their connection to history and their past has been broken. It made me think of Africans who were kidnapped from their homes to be enslaved in America. And mm -hmm. so I just wondered if there was a parallel about the erased history of enslaved Americans and this, this kind of erased memory of the inhabitants of Swazembe. Um, that's very insightful, Rob, because there definitely is. There is um, a broken connection. There are so many African-Americans who have no connection with Africa. And you can travel, you can go anywhere you want to go, but they'll visit Europe, they'll go to Hawaii, they'll go to Paris, they'll go here. But when you mention Africa, there's this like, they kind of stiffen. And um, it really used to make me so sad when I would read stories or hear about African immigrants being mistreated, like when their children were in schools and they were being criticized and asked, do you live in trees and that kind of thing? Because as African-Americans, 
we don't have the knowledge. Africa is a very enchanting land and you will meet some of the wisest people you've ever met in your entire life. But we don't know that. We don't have the connection. So the connection that you see or the lack of connection that you see between Swazembe and Earth does parallel the lack of connection that many African-Americans have with Africa and with our own history. You know, I think it's getting a little better, but we don't know our history well enough, in my opinion. Did you want to talk maybe a little bit about the research you did? I mean, you said you spent a year in Zimbabwe. I assume that that has informed your storytelling. When I was in Zimbabwe, I wasn't doing any research. I went there. I was uh, working for the Detroit News at the time. And the backstory is a friend and I went down to the Peace Corps office because we were going to volunteer. We were joining the Peace Corps. We were going to do this. And we got there and found out they didn't need journalists. And we left. We were kind of hurt. <laughs> oh, my God, they don't want our services. Our, our skills are, are worthless elsewhere. But then the two of us both applied for fellowships. I applied for a Rotarian fellowship. It's called Ambassador of Goodwill. She went to India and while she was there, worked with Mother Teresa's mission. I went to Zimbabwe, not knowing what I would discover there, and had had all kinds of adventures and learned a great deal about our culture. And I was mesmerized by what I experienced. Oh, just watching something as basic or simple as people think it is, women carrying the heavy loads on their heads. Trust me that when you see that in person and they don't even have a hand anywhere and they have a basket filled with heavy logs and they're walking down the street like nothing is there, that is mind boggling. Then when you find out about the trances, so as you know that my protagonist, Lalila, eventually goes into tra trances along with the other clairvoyants on Swazembe, that was definitely inspired by Zimbabwe because there were people there. They say they go into trances. That's kind of understood. And a, a good friend of mine told me that his aunt would go into trances and she would speak Portuguese when she was in this trance, even though she didn't know a word of Portuguese. So a lot was there. When you see the jacaranda trees, Zimbabwe was filled with jacaranda trees, the balancing rocks, the boulders on the asteroid. Zimbabwe again, but I was not researching. I was traveling. I was on a leave of absence. I was studying at the University of Zimbabwe, meeting people and just having different experiences and fun and learning a great deal about culture. Had no idea that I would eventually use that as part of a novel. I did know that I was kind of fascinated by whenever they talked about rain. You know, we say things like, oh, is it going to rain today? Oh, no, it's raining, whatever. They always say, when the rains come. And I was kind of touched by that. So I left with all these insights and memories that just kind of embedded themselves in the back of my mind. And I tend to write from my subconscious a lot anyway. So when I sat down to write, there it was, to write the novel. So that was beautiful. How long ago was that experience? That's just it, Brenda. It was ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I should, not, I should not even be feeling all this. And I'm sure there are some details I, I've forgotten, but it's like it's still with me. So I went to Zimbabwe at the age of 34. And, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to turn 70 next week. So what? 
No. No, I did not know That's that. That's impossible. No, I'm turning 70 next week. So it, it was in some of the promo they said a novel released at the age of 69, but they didn't say on the verge of 70. Yeah, so that was a long time ago, but it's still there. It's still with me. Amazing. Well, congratulations on your upcoming birthday. Thank you. Okay. First and foremost, listeners, there's no way in many, many <laughs> curse words that Denise is 70. <laughs> We have the privilege of being on a video call, and there's just no way. Thank you. When I first started the novel, I was younger, and 50 sounded old to me. I wanted to ask about the illness. There is an illness spreading in the story, and what makes it so devastating to Lalila in particular is that it manifests as keloids, which she feels make her ugly and disfigure her. And so it takes away the thing she values most, the thing that has made her most special. And I wanted to ask about that. I mean, there's so many different kinds of illnesses, right? But you chose one that actually destroys beauty. And I thought there must be some special significance in that. And I wondered if you could talk about that. That came to me in a dream. A lot of the novel, I can say, was inspired by Zimbabwe. But most of it, too, came from this dream. I was having a series of dreams of seeing this woman standing on a cliff, which I now know was the asteroid, wearing this hood. And I don't know how often I had that, had that dream. I'm not sure. But one night I had this amazing dream, and this woman was standing there, and she said that when I speak in the Nekoteth tongue of my father, um, whatever, whatever, she said, and then these beings, the clabs, these glassy-looking beings with large heads, and dressed like they were trying to mimic Earth attire, said, we sentence you to the keloid planet. And it was clear in the backdrop that their belief is that if you want to torture someone or attack someone, you take what is their glory and you use that against them. Well, dark skin has a tendency to keloid when it's, when it's been punctured or when you have a wound. Not everyone with dark skin. My skin doesn't keloid, but I know other black people who do, and I'm, I'm sure there are white people who do too, but I think it, it mainly happens with melanated skin, this tendency to keloid. So what they were doing is that they were taking what was our gift and using it against us. That, that was the whole point of the dream. So when I had the dream, I jotted it down and either went back to sleep or jumped up and got ready for work because you know I was working as a reporter then. And it sat there in my drawer for a long time. Then when I was ready to write it, to write my novel, I had some time in between jobs. I just left the Detroit News. I hadn't started at the crisis yet. In fact, I wasn't even hired yet. So I said, I'm going to use this time. I got a job offer. Wouldn't take it. I said, no, 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 this is my time. I think I was 39 going on 40. And I started it, and I wrote something really fast because I had to take another job. And then I stuck that in a drawer. It was a skeletal novel in a drawer for many years until I finally got time again. It took years before I found the time to get back to it. But yes, the dream influenced the novel a great deal. The novel kind of was built around the dream. And then I didn't know this. When I finally started writing it again, I got a minute, then the dreams came back. And then I stopped and the dreams went away. Then when I finally got a chance to do that final push, I never had a dream again, but I started having little flash visions that helped me out. It's interesting that you talk about that because one of the things 
in this book, and you had talked a little bit about the trances that you had witnessed in Zimbabwe and the trances that we have in in this book, is that it does have in spots kind of a, a metaphysical or a new age or an other mm-hmm. type of presence to it. And I'm curious, do you think that was influenced from the fact that it came from dreams over many years? Or was that something you were trying to put into the book? And then maybe it affected you in real life? I think both, Brenda. I um, think that the fact that it came from a dream gave the book a dreamlike quality because there were there was more than one dream that influenced it and more than one little flash vision. When I saw the Iteire, I was sitting on my sofa. I lived in downtown Detroit looking at the water, and I was looking at the water, and at that time, Fodger was traveling through um, traveling through the Gwimbia and Otazuilem, and there were these beautiful shell-like creatures. They looked like noodles, and I was like, what are those? So it was like, I don't know where they came from, but I, I could see them too. So the dreams that I had, the, the vision, and also, what was the other part of your question? It was the, the dreams that influenced it. It was vision. And then... Um, oh, and then the flashes that you were having towards the end. Yeah, the flashes that, that, that influenced it. And there was another aspect of it too. The Zimbabwean influence of the trances. Because when I was there, one of the things that comes through loud and clear is that the spirit world really directs them. They're really in tune with the spirit world and take it very seriously. Um, Trevor Noah was telling a joke once. It might not even been a joke. It might have been on the Today Show. And he said that if someone says, goes, tries to take you to court, and like in South Africa, and they say that you use some type of um, medicine, juju medicine or some kind of other medicine to try to uh, sabotage their their crops or their whatever. Don't laugh. If you don't take it seriously and you go to court with no evidence that you didn't do this, Trevor Noah goes, you will lose <laughs> because it's that much entrenched in their culture. And so I experienced that and I rather liked it because in answer to your other question, Brenda, I'm very new age. So it's interesting that it shows. It seems like more evidence of Lalila's and the Zwazembians disconnect from their past because she starts hearing voices Mm -hmm. and she really thinks she's going crazy. She doesn't associate it with, I don't know if you heard that my my cat is wheezing a little bit. So if you hear a funny noise, it's my cat. He's okay though. But she, she doesn't know what she's hearing. She doesn't understand it. She thinks maybe there's a music chip somewhere playing, like she's trying Mm -hmm. to explain it. But if she had had, I imagine an understanding of, of trances and what they were, she wouldn't have been fighting it and resisting it and being, mm-hmm. she was really, she's really upset. And mm-hmm. yet it turns out to be something positive for her. I mean, it's something that is introduced to her that really changes the course of her life. Right. Her confusion is very poignant, how, mm-hmm. how she doesn't understand it. And if you want to talk a little bit about it, it's a bit of a spoiler to talk about what those voices actually are. So I don't know if you want to, or we can sort of say this is a little spoiler warning now, like, a, you know, something she finds out towards the end of the book, what those voices signify. Well, I think we can hint at it because when she starts hearing the voices, they're muddled at first. 
So one of the reasons she's afraid and or thinks maybe they're music ships, she doesn't know what it means and she doesn't know what they're saying and she doesn't associate herself with any kind of gift like that. So, yeah, and we'll probably leave it at that. So that, but that, that makes sense, though, what you said. I like a lot of sci-fi and I read a lot of fantasy and oftentimes there's a lot of violence mm-hmm. in the genres, you know, whether it be people going off to war or space operas where there's war or all kinds of different types of, of violence. One of the things that stands out in this book for me is mm-hmm. the lack of violence. And I would love to hear more from your perspective about was that a conscious choice on your part or was it more the story that you were trying to tell just happened to avoid violence or, or not need violence? It was conscious, Brenda. It was deliberate. And everyone who knows me knows I can't take violence. And I don't want to criticize the state of the world in that way. But I, I honestly believe that if we would tone down the violence in our, in what entertains us, the movies, whatever books that maybe we would tone it down in society. Some people disagree with me, but it's the whole thing. You know, what you take in is what you're going to, what you put out. And so because I avoid violence at all costs, I'm, I'm ultra sensitive to it. So, if I go to certain movies and it gets to be too much, I'm in the lobby. I mean, if it's not too much, I can just look at the floor. You know, you just avert your gaze until it's over of that scene, that scene. Because sometimes those kinds of scenes are important to advance the story, right? But sometimes they're not, and I have to go to the lobby. So there's no way that it was going to exist in the world, that, in any world that I ever create. I deliberately made them a peaceful, peace-loving society. There's a little, a little brawl that the claps get into, but, th- but that's about it. I mean, and that was more, more than enough. There was a request made from on high, the publisher, that I add a battle scene. And I was, it was during a Zoom call and I was like this with my hand on my heart, like, oh my God, no. But I told them, I says, I can't do, I don't do battle scenes, but I'll give you something even better. And that's the closing scene. That would be a spoiler if I gave that away. But some of the scenes at the end that I added, and I thought that worked just as well. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Brenda, because um, there was one review where the person also said that. He said, and this is a guy too, he said that what stood out for him was that there was no violence. And he said he'd like to see more of that in speculative fiction. So I hope that I've opened that door. Well, and I think too, without giving too much away, I think even your, your antagonists, what we would consider the enemy are not truly the enemy. You're just giving another side of this galaxy that you've created and another perspective that doesn't, just because you're the other, it does not automatically mean that you turn to violence or evil or all of these different avenues. So I thought that was really intriguing as well. Yes. My, my antagonists were... They were, they could be, they were a little bit goofy somewhat. Like, you know, I have a hard time creating villains. (laughs) So I think that I cope with their evil by making them kind of awkward. So they were kind of awkward. 
I think, though, the reason they weren't violent is that they didn't have access to weaponry. And as long as I'm writing, they won't, they never will get access. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I want you to run the world. You'll take oh, away everyone, you. everyone's weapons. Oh yeah. If I had any control at all, they would vanish in thin air. As a matter of fact, if I had one wish, just one wish from a genie, then all of them would just disappear, especially nuclear warfare, especially nuclear, what are nuclear arms, whatever. It just wouldn't exist. So there's that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a beautiful sentiment, but then I immediately think, well, what would people do? They'd pick up chairs and start hitting each other over the head with chairs or something if they didn't yeah. have formal yeah. weapons. But there's a, a part of the brain, you know, that's primal and we're nourishing it. Now, unfortunately, because of technology, I think it's being nourished more because of the way the technology is used in terms of the special effects and movies and all of that. Because when we were kids, you know, I'm older than you guys, but when I was a kid, you watched the, the cowboy and Indian movies and you'd see them getting shot or whatever. You'd see them falling off and that's that. It wasn't that graphic, but it's just getting worse and worse. And so the more the public is fed, the more anesthetized they become. And so in order to feel something, they have to keep adding it on and adding it on and adding it on. Well, I wanted to ask about speaking of something positive, you know, it's a very subtle, but it definitely evokes a very different culture that you've created this greeting for people. They greet each other by saying waves of, and it's usually something positive, like waves of joy. I think mm -hmm. they say other things too, like waves of beauty or waves something. Waves of thanks, yes. Yeah. Waves of thanks. Yes. It has a religious quality to it. It has, I, I felt like it came from somewhere that I'm just ignorant of, but it could also have come from one of your dreams. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just curious about that, but I thought it was that kind of thing goes a long way. It's a very subtle thing, but it goes a long way to evoking a very different sense of place and, and a culture. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, you know, energy travels in waves. So I wanted it to be that they're they're in touch with waves. If you notice the dance they're doing is a wave dance. So I was just I was invoking that 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 sense of energy and that they understood energy and were tapped into energy. And I wanted it to be a a society that in addition to being peaceful, that they're focused on being happy. So your greeting is waves of joy, waves of peace. And if you're saying thank you, you might say waves of thanks, you know that kind of thing. And if, if you're teasing someone or they're doing something you don't like and all that, or, or they're acting jealous of you, then they're a light stealer. So it was just, it was just focusing on energy as the, as the dominant force. And then also dropping that little hint, because as you know, African-American hair coils and spirals. And it's really, when you see it, it's a real tight spiral. Those are waves. That's the way energy moves in a spiral and a coil and all that. So I was bringing all that. I wanted to bring that energy into the novel. That is so cool. Yeah. I definitely did not think of that, but I love that. Right. Well, I, I was curious, and this is a little tent. This is totally tangential to the book, I suppose. But it's so cool that you were the first woman editor of The Crisis, which was founded by W.E.B. Du Bois. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a particular question, except what did it feel like breaking a tradition in a way, but also being part of, of an important American tradition? It was such a major honor. I mean, I was taking a job that W.E.B. Du Bois once held. I was like, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. Um, unfortunately, I didn't stay a long time because when I was editor, the NAACP was going through a major shakeup. 
and their chairman and their national chairman and president were being, um, for lack of a better term, ousted, Dr. Gibson and, and Craig Chavis. So after a year that started going on and there was so much turmoil, I, I had to leave. But during the time that I was there, it was an empowering experience. But I don't think I was there long enough to really leave a mark, you know, so I can't talk about any legacy, except for maybe the, the Yes, I Can series, where we honored people in the community who were making a significant contribution. That's been kind of the theme of everything I do, just making a contribution. Well, and in terms of making a contribution, we were chatting a little bit ahead of, of this episode, and you had mentioned who you're hoping to reach with where it rains in color. So not maybe existing, not necessarily just existing fans of science fiction, but maybe some some other folks who have not necessarily seen themselves in the genre before. Right, Brenda, I perceive it as a crossover book. I'm hoping that sci-fi fans embrace it, even though it's different from other sci-fi books that they may have read, you know, and I think a couple reviewers did say that, you know, like they could pick it up and it's not the type of world building that they're used to. So I'm hoping that the sci-fi community engages, but I'm really hoping that women of color see themselves, especially young women of color, that suddenly the goal is not how light you can be. The goal is just to celebrate the whole spectrum. Because if you notice, I have um, the indigo and then the rare indigo, who's darker than dark. But then there's also the, um, the range of colors, the rainbow, and that would include the women who are tawny dramatic. That to me was a way of saying like, you know, among Europeans, there's blonde, brunette, and redhead. And among African-Americans, we never do that because there's kind of like, it's caught up in our painful past to just focus on that. And I think that Europeans doing that, it's a positive thing. And I wanted us to do that too. So I think that Women of color will pick up the book, enjoy seeing themselves elevated, put on a pedestal. And as I keep saying to people, a woman who was not uh, being admired and revered despite the fact that she's black, but a, a woman who's being admired and revered because she's black. Now that's the switch. Because generally when you see a black woman honored in that way, you're saying, oh, in spite of the fact that she's black or she's the first black or whatever, you know, this is, you know, using it as the reason. So it's kind of it's flipping that that particular beauty standard so that we're all included. And I can't help but feel that black women and black girls in general will be inspired and my dream of dreams that it could start a movement among them to suddenly start calling themselves indigo or rear indigo or tawny dramatic and just really loving who they are, you know, loving them as them, loving themselves as they are. And a, a side note to that inclusion, um, even though you were using these terms and it is a very black centric and beautifully black centric book, you use the term melanin bearers a lot. And so I'm Vietnamese American and a little bit darker. So I have a little extra melanin mm -hmm. here. And so I did feel included, yeah. whether that whether that was a conscious choice on your part when you use the term women of color, even though I was not centered in the book, I definitely felt 
a place in the book. Oh, I'm so excited, Brenda, because that is exactly what I was doing with melanin bearers and saying women of color. In fact, there's um, a community activist in Pontiac who wants to have a big event. When I do my book signing in Detroit, she's going to have one in Pontiac, Michigan, which is Pontiac's like an hour from Detroit. And um, she says there's a strong, is it Hmong community? and some other communities. So it's going to be not just for black women, she's inviting women of color from the community and she's sponsoring it in a way that will they'll buy blocks of books to give to certain certain people there, like girls' homes or schools that come with, with that intent, with the intent of, of including all of us. Because, um, oh, you're beautiful, Brenda, by the way. I guess I guess you, you, you can see that, but, but, but being, it's, it's like saying, having this hue is a good thing, you know? And so we wanna be included. And that's to say, it's all beautiful, which is something the Dove campaign has been trying to do for a while. Just celebrate every, every luck. We'll see what happens. Well, I feel very lucky to be talking to two beautiful women. And I'm not fishing for a compliment myself. It's okay. <laughs> You are a very beautiful man as well. Oh, well, if you say so. Okay. But I'm ex- I am was excited to hear you say that, Brenda, that you felt included. That really made me feel good that you felt that. Yes. Because when I was starting to read a little bit about um, these toxic skin lightening creams, I found out that women in Asia and um, are doing it too. You know, it's not. And I know in India, it's particularly bad. I heard, I think it was on the radio, it was a news report, where someone had investigated, and I'm going to get all the timing wrong, but there were a series of ads, or maybe there have always been ads, for uh, straightening creams that Black women use to straighten their hair. And someone Mm -hmm. went, and maybe it was Mm -hmm. one of the models who spoke up, you know, decades later, and said, Mm -hmm. well, I never had curly hair, I never had kinky hair, I always had straight hair. So it was basically a fraud you know, she was a, a black woman who had straight hair and there were other models like that. And she was modeling for this product and she, she already had straight hair naturally. Yes, wow. yes, yes. Wow. So you can't even attain it, really. You're, you're comparing yourself to someone who didn't even use the product, in other words. Right. And, and then the sheer irony, Rob, is that so if you have black women who would wear a black woman, let's say she's wearing a straight weave and then ridiculed because she's doing that, then you have the black woman straightening her hair then criticized because she's doing that. And then she wears her hair natural. Then she's told, oh, you're banned from the workplace or you can't come to the school. So what are we supposed to do? It's, it's just absurd. So there are so many ways to be beautiful, so many ways. And, and for some people, and I have to say this, who might say, oh, beauty, beauty. And somebody else was complaining about that. all this focus about beauty. They don't understand what it feels like to be part of a group that's marginalized. They also don't get the fact that every creature, everything, every being wants to be appreciated, even your plants. If you ignore your plant and you don't admire them, you don't give them that loving attention and talk to them, we all know they're not going to thrive. So if even the plant needs our appreciating and our, our appreciation and our love, don't humans need it too? So that's my answer to the critics who would respond or, or complain about the, the fuss about beauty. Wonderful. Well, this might be a good point to ask Denise, 
what is next? We've obviously spent a lot of time talking about where it rains in color. What are you currently working on? Can you give us a, a sneak peek or can you, you know, shout it out? Let listeners know. Well, I have two things. One of them is a, a YA or maybe middle grade book that I wrote during the pandemic. But even though I wrote it, I want to go back to it and do some revisions and all of that. I haven't done that yet because I was so focused on Where It Rains in Color. Also, the other one is a sequel to Where It Rains in Color. They say don't start writing sequels until whatever. But I had to because it's not over. You know, she just finally gets to her glory and it's like, okay, what next? And there's a whole lot of stuff here, including a couple old dreams that I have to, you know, I have to kind of like... um release. I have another idea that I'm excited about too, but I won't share it because it's still, you know, I don't want to share it yet. I don't want to. I can't get to most of this yet because I am a ghostwriter for a living. That's my occupation. And that's pretty tricky because it's one thing to do one thing for a living. I mean, I kind of wish I was teaching or something. And then go write, but when you write for a living and then write for yourself, it gets tough, you know, to try to, so I usually have to block off some time if I'm in between, if I'm finished with the client and then I have this time here, but I'm going to get there. It's okay. Cause it always works itself out. It always does. So I'll have some time that'll come up and sometimes, you know, you know, my schedule things will part like the Red Sea. I really envy writers when I hear them saying, oh, I wrote so many words today, or oh, I'm this today, that, that's going to be heaven for me when I get that kind of time to just focus on my projects, which is coming soon. I mean, I'm 70, so shouldn't it be, shouldn't it be around the corner? <laughs> I say so. I, I, I think it should be. Yes. Absolutely. And then for those, too, who are looking for a little bit more, you were talking about how you a friend inspired you to create a glossary yes that goes along with this book yeah. this friend called me and said her book arrived and she says but denise i don't want to start reading it and i don't even know how to pronounce these names i said there's a glossary she says yes the glossary gives you the the, the reminders the definitions so if you want to check back and see what that is she says but it doesn't tell you how to pronounce it i said i didn't even think about that because i could have put an example and she said that's okay We'll create one. So this friend had the expertise to do something like that. And so she contacted me again and we set it up so that she introduced me and created, had me pronounce every single, uh, not every single word in the book, obviously, but the difficult terms. And so if you go to my website, which is really a blog site, denisecrittenden.blog, you'll see a glossary that includes the pronunciation for the terms that might be a little might, might be tongue twisters. So those who want a little extra, yes. can yeah. get that little extra on the website. Yes. That's great. Yes. Very thoughtful. Well, I guess that probably concludes the wonderful interview we've had. And thank you so much, Denise. It's really been so much fun. It was so much fun to read Where It Rains in Color and, and really fascinating talking to you. I enjoyed this interview so much. And those were the best questions. Thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for the sheer uh, appreciation that I feel for Swazembe. So I thank you. And in Zimbabwe, they had a term that they would use called tatienda. When they said thank you, they clap their hands together and do this. And that's their way of saying, I thank you. My family thanks you. My ancestors thank you. Oh, 
Oh, that's beautiful. Tatienda? Yes. And I can't see what you're doing with your hands. Tatienda. Can you describe it? You clasp your hands like this, yeah. Grasp your hands together, one on top of the other. If you, if you notice Issa, Lalila's rival in the book, she tended to do that. She was from the village, and I had her doing that. Beautiful. Thank you. We have been talking with Denise Crittenden, whose novel Where It Rains in Color came out in December 2022 from Angry Robot Books. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'm Brendan Weser. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. And we would love it if you subscribe to the show and... Wow, if you gave us five stars, we'd be forever grateful. It helps others find the show and warms our hearts. Thank you so much for listening, and bye for now.